Good morning. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say. All right, before we start, uh, I want to apologize to my wife. Uh, she was in the nursery two weeks ago, so she didn't hear this, and she's actually in the nursery today. But two weeks ago, I went to a birthday party Sunday night, and I would, if those of you that don't know, Joe Tamburo, who attends here, we were college roommates. And his parents said, I can't believe you've been married for 25 years. And I said, I can't believe that either, because we've been married for 21 years. And she said, you said you got married in 1998. And I said, I did? Yeah. So apparently, uh, we started dating January 1st, 1998. And apparently I said we got married 1998. So I don't know what's thinking there. I was thinking about when we started dating. So I apologize. So have grace for me that I got the dates wrong. I, don't, I didn't even realize I did that. So anyways. All right. So for those of you who are wondering, I haven't been married 25 years, 21 years. August 10th, but we will celebrate 25 when we get there. So we're in our fifth week uh, on the book of Malachi. And uh, Malachi was written 400 years before uh, Jesus was born. It was 100 years after the Israelites returned from Babylon, returned from exile. And unfortunately, Israel was just going through the motions with their worship. And so this is now the fifth week in our series And as we look at the big picture, our series is called Return to Me. Because what God is doing is he's challenging the Israelites on their disobedience, on their idolatry. He's saying, return to me and I will return to them. God is calling them to restore their relationship. But in order to do that, he needs to confront their disobedience. So in the first speech, we see God begins by saying, I love you. I've always loved you. I will always love you. I chose you. And we looked at how God invites us to be a part of his family. The second discourse, God said, you defiled my name by bringing all these lame animals, by bringing animals that have broken legs and one eye and all these different things, rather than giving what you were required to give. Even though you had good animals, you brought these lame animals. And we talked about how God wants us to give our best. In the third discourse, uh, God said, you've defamed my name by being unfaithful to each other especially in your relationships and in your marriages. And we, we looked at how the Israelite men were leaving their Israelite wives and going to, more likely, foreign women so that they could be more financially prosperous, women that didn't obey or follow God. And we talked about how God wants us to be faithful. And in the fourth discourse, the Israelites were accusing God of not acting out against injustice. They were saying, God, why don't you act? And John asked the question last week, be careful what you ask for. Because at the same time they were asking God to act on foreign countries, they themselves were living with injustice and they were mistreating others and they weren't taking care of the poor and needy. So today we're going to get in the fifth speech. The fifth speech deals primarily with finances. And maybe as Caleb was praying and he said, as we have a sermon about finances, you might go, okay, here we go. I promise you, my goal today is to help us orient our hearts toward our God. Because everything that we have is His. And so how do we give it back to Him? So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, You're so good. And we see Your faithfulness to the nation of Israel. All the times they've turned away from You. All the times they've rejected You. All the times they've pursued other things 
And we're thankful because, Lord, there are times that we fail. Times that we purposefully seek our own selfishness and our own desires rather than your purposes. Times where we hold things back from you that are not ours, but rather are yours. Times that we live in sin and yet we are thankful that you welcome us back. That you say, return to me and I will return to you. Lord, help us to find hope in that truth today. But Lord, also challenge us to not hold anything back. To recognize that you deserve our best and our first. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, after uh, studying the fifth speech this week, I spent the, really the last two weeks uh, simmering on it. And uh, there were three questions I asked myself as I read this text, and I want to ask you today. First, if God were to look at your finances, what would he find? What do your finances say about your heart? And would God have anything to confront in your finances? And that's essentially what God does in today's passage. He looks at the finances of the Israelites and the condition of their heart, and he makes an accusation. Now, as a reminder, here's the, the kind of the format of all these speeches. First, God makes a declarative statement or an accusation against the nation of Israel. Then they object to that statement, and then God answers it. Now, since Ben read the whole passage, we're just going to jump in. God begins with this truth. I, the Lord, do not change. God does not change. You're studying theology. The theological term for this is God's immutability. And in Numbers 23, it's put this way. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has, he said, and will he not do Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? God, when he says something, he will do it. In Psalm 33, it says, The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. God does not change. When he declares something, it is done. In the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it describes God as infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God is immutable. And that is something that means that if He says something, it's true. He's not going to go back on His word. Now why is God bringing this up here? Why is He leading with this to the Israelites? Well, read it. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. See, God didn't change, but unfortunately, neither did Israel. Time and time again, Israel went wayward. Time and time again, they pursued their own way. Time and time again, they rejected God's plan. Time and time again, they were disobedient. And yet, because God does not change. He did not destroy Jacob. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. But unlike the Edomites in the first speech, God had a purpose and plan for Israel. And even though they turned, even though they rejected him, even though they disobeyed, God continued to invite them back. Invite them into a relationship. Look at this next verse. Return to me, and I will return 
to you, says the Lord Almighty. That's the theme of our series because God is inviting the nation of Israel back into relationship. And God does this all throughout the Old Testament. Just two examples. Zechariah 1.3, return to me. Oh, I have the full thing here. Sorry. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. Second Chronicles 36, people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to you. This Hebrew word return can also be translated repent, and it means this 180. It's a military term where you're going here and you make an about face. It's this idea of turning from the way you were headed and turning toward something. Turning from sin and turning toward God. God says, return to me and I will return to you. The Israelites had turned away from God, pursued their own selfishness, pursued their own dishonest gain. And God said, look, if you come back to me, I will restore and renew you. Because he loved them. Because he chose them among all the other nations that exist. And he wanted them to be restored. See, maybe you find yourself far from God. God makes that same offer to you. Return to me. And I will return to you. I love the story of the prodigal son. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible because the son does everything wrong. Rejects his father. Squanders his wealth. And yet when he comes back to to give his speech to the father, the father runs to him, embraces him, doesn't even let him finish his speech, and brings blessing upon blessing. God wants us to return. I love the picture in Hebrews 4, that God sees everything we do, our thoughts, our actions, everything. And yet, he welcomes us into his throne room. And knowing that we receive grace and mercy in our time of need, when we come before our king. God calls us to return. So what will the Israelites' response be to this invitation? But you ask, how are we to return? And this word how is used a number of different ways, but here in Malachi, in the, in the Hebrew, it's not like a, a question. Really, this one, the, the New Living Translation gets it right. The New Living Translation says, how can we return when we've never gone away? Essentially what they're saying is, we're right here, God. <laughs> we haven't moved away. How can you tell us to return? We're fine. We're good. We don't need to return. <laughs> For those of you who have kids... When you've confronted something they've done wrong, maybe you've experienced this before. You did this. Well, no, it's nothing wrong with that. I didn't do anything wrong. Not that my kids ever do that. My kids never do that. They obey everything I say. But sometimes kids are just oblivious. They're like, I didn't do anything wrong. And sometimes we, like that, are wayward kids, and we're like, I didn't do anything wrong. And God's like, well, you have. God responds by giving them a path to reconciliation. He tells them what they need to do to return to him. But first, he outlines what caused this separation. Why are they separated? And and that's something that we should do as we read the Bible each and every day. We we challenge you to read God's word because what it does is it, it makes us aware of blind spots we have. It reveals to us areas where we've wandered away from God and we might not even see it. We might not even recognize it. And yet when we read God's word, God works through it to challenge us to repent 
Verse 8, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. God is just making this accusation. You're robbing me. But they're saying, how are we robbing you? They're thinking like, well, I never broke into the temple and stole your stuff. Like, what are you talking about, God? I've, I've never robbed you. I never took anything from you. But God says, in your tithes and offerings, you're under a curse, the whole nation, because you are robbing me. Now think of all the accusations God has brought so far. First, they brought blind, lame, and diseased animals for sacrifice. The priests were, were not teaching God's word. The, the men had mistreated and divorced their wives, left them destitute. The, the nation had complained about injustice, but mistreated laborers, widow, widows, fatherless, the foreigners. Now it says, look, you're all under a curse because you're not bringing your tithes. And really the issue is obedience. They're, they're not giving to God what God had called them to give. God had commanded to the nation of Israel that they give this tithe, and they were disobedient. Now, ironically, I didn't realize this before today's, or I was doing some studying, and, and I saw it, and it was like, this makes a lot of sense. I had never seen it. Often, when we go through hardships, we focus on the people around us, and we compare ourselves. And so what the nation of Israel was doing, just think about all those judgments. First, they didn't believe God loved them because they saw the nations around them prospering. So they were doubting God's love for them. Then they didn't want to give the, the lambs and the things that were worth a lot of money. They didn't want to do that. So they brought their, their sick animals, their lame animals to sacrifice because they didn't want to give up the stuff that was actually valuable. And then they were struggling to make it, so rather than, you know, just trust God for that, they divorced their wives and went and married foreign women that were better off financially. And then they complained that God wasn't acting on these foreign nations, and and they were being blessed, but, but they themselves, the Israelites, weren't experiencing God's blessing. All of it really came down to, I'm not rich, I'm struggling, everybody else is fine, and I'm mad at you, God. And so they were withholding their tithes and offerings. But it's interesting, living in America, how easy it can be to compare ourselves to the people around and complain and be frustrated with the situation we find ourselves in. And that's what they were doing. All this came down to their heart. And a big part of their heart was tied to their money. Sometimes, you know, I've heard well-meaning preachers talk about this passage say it's really not about money. And in a sense, it isn't. You know, in the same way when we preached about Moses, we talked about how really the story was about God. And, and this really is about God and his people and their relationship. But ultimately, you know, money is something that's, that's something all of us struggle with. In fact, there's a reason why Jesus seemed to correlate how we handle our finances with where our heart is at. 42% of Jesus' parables were about finances in some way. One pastor calculated that one out of every six verses in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are related to how we use our possessions and our finances. When God redeemed us, he redeemed all of us. He didn't say, give me Sundays. He said, give me Sunday through Saturday. He didn't say, give me your days at work or your days off. He said, give me every day. He said, I want you to have marriages that honor me. I want you to have relationships that honor me. And also he wants our finances to honor him. All we have is a gift of the Lord. We're called to give God our first and our best. But we have to remember we are in a different context than the nation of Israel. 
We're not the nation of Israel. God hasn't given this specific command to us. And when we think about the nation of Israel, we have to remember how things were organized. So first there was this tithe. Tithe just means tenth. So 10% of everything that they earned was to go to the temple to provide to make sure the temple was kept up to make sure the the Levites didn't have to have second jobs, that they could just work in the temple, maintaining the temple, doing the sacrifices, going through the things they were supposed to do, to have supplies for the temple. So there was this tenth that was committed to that. And one of Ezra's contemporaries, Nehemiah, if you remember last week, John talking about that, he rebuked the Israelites for neglecting their tithes and offerings to the point that the temple was falling into disrepair. And, and they had to... The, the, the Levites had to go into their fields and work because they, they didn't have enough money because of the tithes. Hold off on that. I'm going to get to that in a minute. Then there was this second tithe that was also 10%. So now we're up to 20%. And that was to cover all the festivals and the feasts. So when people would come together every year, they would have the, the stuff in the storehouses to have these festivals, festivals and feasts to remember God and what he did. And then there was a third tithe that was every third year that was to take care of the poor and and the widows and the orphans and the foreigners. Think of it kind of like a welfare type system. So really, the Israelites were to tithe about 23%, 20% every year and then 10% every three years. Now, we also have to remember that Israel was a theocracy. So this is basically the form, form of government. So you think of it not only just as gifts, but also even the kind of like taxes to make sure that the government and the temple and everything could be run well. But in all that, they were just neglecting their responsibilities. They weren't giving to God what God wanted. Now, I'm not going to read all this, but here's Nehemiah 10. Nehemiah comes and reestablishes the tithe because it had gone by the wayside. And he says, bring your first fruits of the ground, first fruits of the fruit, the firstborn of your son. Next slide. We see the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, uh, first of our dough and contributions, fruit of every tree, uh, the tithes and the tithes. We see this consistently. Nehemiah said, you are not doing this. We need to do this. This is what we do to follow God. Now, fast forward, not very long. We don't know the exact distance between Nehemiah and when Malachi was written. Uh, we know there's some similar time frame, and they've already neglected it. And God is confronting them and saying, you're not doing what I commanded you to do. You're being disobedient. Now the question comes out of this is, should believers tithe? Should believers give 10% of their income to the Lord? Is that something that's a command for us? Now, a few years back, I answered that question in more detail. Uh, so you can go back and look at that in a little more detail. But we did see this idea of tithe before the law. We see Cain and Abel. We see it of Abraham. And then we see it in the law. But I don't think the New Testament gives a command of 10%. But I do believe that 10% is a good starting point. And because I actually think the New Testament demands more of us as believers than just saying, hey, this is, this is the one thing I'm going to give. The big picture from the New Testament is that God wants to give us to give sacrificially. God wants us to give generously. And God wants to give us to give joyfully. Sacrificially, generously, and joyfully. To quote Micah Fry's great last name, grace never expects less. It always demands more. 
we are not required to give a tenth based on the OT law, Old Testament law, since we are not under the law, then should we give any less than the Old Testament saints did now that we are under grace? The answer is no. We should give more as a spiritual act of worship. But later he says this, he says, no other practice allows you to exercise your faith and trust in God on a weekly basis like giving. It's that weekly act of giving back to God what he has given to us. Now back to the Israelites. Bring the whole tithe, not part of the tithe, not a portion, not your lame animals, but bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. God says, I want you to bring it all. But then he says something interesting. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw up open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. Now you may remember, there are other passages in the scripture where God says, do not test me. And you're going, God, you, it says you don't change. You seem to be kind of inconsistent here. Other places you say, do not test me. And, and if specifically, he points back to a time in Deuteronomy 6 when the Israelites tested God because they were, they were going away and they, they were grumbling and they were complaining and they were saying, why don't we just go back to Egypt because God's not going to provide. They had a lack of faith and so they tested God. But here, this is a different Hebrew word here. This, this is the word, and I forgot the word, I'm at Bahan, Bahan. I can't say that. I go, Bahan. And it means to examine, scrutinize, or approve. God is basically inviting the nation of Israel, I am faithful. I am good. Test me and see my faithfulness. Be obedient and see my response. Return to me and I will return to you. Not only will I bless you, he uses the same term used in Genesis when the flood happened. God opened up the floodgates of, of heaven and the, and the rain came down for 40 days and 40 nights. And so he says, test me and will I not open up the floodgates of blessing to come down on you? And God will only bless them, he will protect them. Verse 11, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines of your field will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord. So he will bless them, he will protect them, and not only that, the surrounding communities will take note. And we have a, a reference back to Genesis 12, God's promise. All the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. God says, test me and see if I will be faithful because I will be faithful. <coughs> Sorry. Why is God asking the nation of Israel to do this? Why is he calling them out? Why is he calling them to give? Because he loves them. Because he desires for their relationship to be restored. Because he wants them to return to him. But he recognizes that what's wrong in their heart is, is they have a lack of faith, they have a lack of be belief, they're, they're mad at God, and he's challenging them. He's saying, if you change your heart, your behavior will follow. So back to the three questions I looked at at the beginning. God were to look at your finances, what would he find? What do your finances say about your heart, and would God have anything to confront your finances? 
Now, usually as we've been going through this at the end, of, if we looked at this stuff, giving you three application points. Good Baptist, three. But then a couple weeks ago, I did six. I made everybody mad. So this week, we just have two. So two truths. One, God reveals the condition of your heart. Two, giving brings blessing. I don't think anybody actually got mad. I just, anyways. So first, giving reveals the condition of our heart. We often can tell where our heart's at by our priorities. And I think the best way to tell where our heart's at is where we spend our time, where we spend our money. Where we spend our time and where we spend our money. The nation of, of, or the nation of Israel was not tithing. They were bringing bad sacrifices. They weren't following what God said. God wants our first and our best. Proverbs 3 says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your produce. God wants us to give to him first. Exodus 34, he wants to give us the best. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Our best stuff includes our income, our vehicles, our equipment, our clothes, our toys. The American dream is to get more, more, more. Have more things. Have more comfort. And God says, I want your first and your best. Matthew 6, Jesus says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Last week, Pastor John talked about things that were refined by the fire. There are things that will burn away, things that don't have eternal value. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This principle is all throughout the Scripture. Your heart is affected by your possessions and your heart affects your possessions. A few verses later, he says this, No one can serve two masters. You'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Our finances affect our heart, and our heart affects our finances. In Luke 18 and 19, God comes across two different people. The first one is a, a rich young ruler. And this guy is a very moral person. He had, he had done, he had tried to follow the law his whole life. And he had much wealth. And God recognized Jesus, whose omniscient saw his heart and said, One thing you still lack. So all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Not here on earth where moth and vermin destroy, but treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. But when the rich young ruler heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. He was sad because he said, I'm not willing to give that up. He had his finances and he held on to them. And he said, I will not give this to God. That's too much of a cost for me. Now, the very next chapter, there's Zacchaeus. He's one of the chief tax collectors. And the description of Zacchaeus is that he was very rich. Now, Zacchaeus was searching for Jesus. And Jesus called down to him, Zacchaeus, you come down for there, for I'm going to your house today. Anyways. 
And Zacchaeus' response was, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. His response to God's grace, to Jesus' invitation, was to say, I'm going to give half of everything I have to the poor, and the rest, if there's anybody I've wronged, I'm going to four times give them back what I've wronged them. Zacchaeus' response was, God, everything I have is yours. The rich young ruler's response was, God, everything I have is mine. There's a difference between open hands and closed hands, between hoarding what we've been blessed with or giving freely. See, giving reveals the condition of our heart. Secondly, giving brings blessing. Before some of you get nervous that I'm becoming a prosperity gospel preacher, I don't think there's a biblical principle of giving to get. I don't think God calls us to give so we can go, I'm going to give all this so that I get more, so I can have more. I mean, sometimes you listen to the preachers on TV, and it's like, if you give this, God will bring all back all these blessings. And it's like, it seems like at times it's like, okay, I'm going to give more so that I can get more rich, so that I can get more stuff, so I can have more houses, more planes, more whatever. That's not Scripture. God doesn't promise financial wealth and prosperity or financial health and prosperity he promises spiritual health and prosperity when we're generous when we give second corinthians 9 paul's talking to the church about giving and, and and look at these things this is really cool first there's just a basic principle whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully there is a principle in the scriptures that when we when we sow bountifully when, we, when we're generous that god brings it back in some way But how does God do this? Well, first, each one of us must give as he has decided in his heart. So we have to choose. How are we going to give to the Lord? Then, not reluctantly or under compulsion. So that means I can't stand up here and be like, you need to give 22.5% or 10.3% or whatever. I can't compulse you. I don't even know if that's a word. But I can't compulse you. To, to give, to say, this is what you have to do, and then you're going to do it. No, this is saying, God, you have to give from your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because what? God loves a cheerful giver. God wants us to be joyful in our giving, to recognize that everything we have is his, and so we give joyfully back to him. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. Now, listen to this. How does he do that? So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times. God will provide what we need. His grace is sufficient for you. You may abound in every financial blessing. You may get lots more money so that you will have big houses and pools and and, and boats and planes and automobiles and trains and all those things. No. So that you may abound in what? Every good work. God brings back our blessings in different ways so that we will be enriched in every way. Why? Why does God bring back financial blessings if we give? It's not so we can hoard more. It's so that we can be generous in every way. God rewards our giving oftentimes financially so that we can give more, not so that we hoard more. He, he, he gives us every good work. We're enriched so that we can be generous, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. As we're generous, we get to be thankful for God's blessing, but also the people that we're generous to 
get to experience God's blessing. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, because they were sending this money to the needy saints in Jerusalem, but it is also overflowing many thanksgivings to God. Because as the needy Christians got it in Jerusalem, they were so thankful for God's provision. And yet at the same time, those were giving could be thankful to give to God and to take care of these needs of their brothers and sisters. I, I grew up uh, as a missionary kid, and uh, we didn't have much. But time and time again, we saw God miraculously provide. Time and time and time again. And I've seen it in my life so many times. You know, when I last preached on generosity, there was a lady in my church. And uh, she would go, uh, I don't want to give away too many details, but she would go do this thing and she would get cash from it sometimes. Not under the table or anything. It was just, uh, there's way too much information here. I'll just make it simple. She would just stop by my house, give me an envelope and say, this is for school. And she's like, and you, can't, and she's like, you can't, you can't say thank you. I'm like, oh, I'm saying thank you anyways. But, but just, she was so excited to have a way just to help me pay for seminary. And I have so many times been thankful for the ways that God has blessed us through other people's generosity. And I, I've seen myself when I've had the opportunity to be generous and the opportunity to provide the, the joy that that brings me and how I see God work through it. And I don't do it because it makes me feel good. That's not the reason to give. But God blesses our generosity. And so God says, test me. Test me. If you haven't done this before, do it. Give generously. Give sacrificially. See, God wants all of us. He wants our money, our relationship, our time, our commitments. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. We're in a season now where one son needs braces. The other son started a, a Christian private school. Our retaining wall needs to be fixed. and he just, It like adds up. And there have been times where I go, okay, I'm doing the math, and I'm like, all right. My math isn't adding up correctly. You know, and you think, well, if I didn't tithe, man, I'd have money for all this. But here's the principle I've learned in my life. Some people say I can't afford to tithe. My personal belief is you can't afford not to. I've seen time and time again, God be faithful to me as I've been faithful to him. I firmly believe that we can't afford not to give back to God what is rightfully his If we hoard what God gives us, God doesn't bless that. We need to have open hands. There was this story uh, I read this week, and uh, if you know your history, the the history of the Crusades is is not a a good moment in history for Christians. And uh, the legend has it that the Knights of the Templar, the Crusaders from England, would, before they went to war, they would go into the water to baptize and go all the way under to declare themselves as on a mission from God. But when they went, they would hold their swords above the water. And their whole body would go into the water, but they keep their swords above the water because they wanted to give God everything, but they knew they would have to do some things with their sword that God wouldn't like. That's, that's so sad. Say, God, take all of me except for this one thing. I think sometimes as Christians, we kind of do that. We go into the water and say, God, I'll give you everything, but just let me hold my wallet above the water. I'm not going to give you this. 
This is mine. The rest of the stuff you can have, but let me hold on to this. See, the nation of Israel was holding so much back from God, but we do the same thing. So my challenge to you is, is God Lord of every area of your life, including your finances? Let's pray. God, I thank you for the reminder. Return to me, and I will return to you. Lord, there's grace. There's grace for any of us that have held things back, that at any moment we can confess that, we can give it to you and know we will receive grace and mercy in our time of need. And Lord, we're thankful that the reason why we can give is because you have blessed us. Lord, all the good gifts that we have, they're from you. Lord, thank you for giving us good gifts. Lord, for any of us that are struggling financially, Lord, I, I pray that you'd use people in this church to come alongside. I thank you for financial peace. I thank you for other resources. I thank you for the benevolent fund as people give graciously and generously to that so we can come alongside those that have need. I thank you that you can use us to generously bless others that have needs. Lord, we need each other. Help us to be a blessing to each other and help us to receive your blessings that you give us and be thankful for them and help us to live with open hands rather than closed hands. In your name we pray. Amen.